Hello again. We're going to jump right into it. If you have your Bibles, please open up with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses today as we kick off our DNA Sundays, our reset. Um, you know, when we talk about DNA, basically part of our goal is that we want to reinforce our identity, as I stated earlier. You know, and really the idea of when we say follow us as we follow Christ, the very essence is that we believe that the gospel changes people and God uses people to change the world. So our mission is to unleash healthy people to do ministry where life exists. And we define health as people who are growing in the gospel in the context of family while on mission. And so everything we do in our discipleship culture that here at the church is to um, target these kind of four areas that we're going to be hitting on um, over the next few weeks. Um, number one is gospel-centered believer. Um, the, number two is responsible sibling. The third one is indigenous disciple maker. And then finally, generous steward. That we believe that Christianity is not a, a religion, but it's relationships. And these primary relationships is basically it's our relationship with God, our relationship with other believers and our relationship with our neighbor. And really when we talk about generous steward is that we believe that God has called each and every one of us to use all of our time, all of our talent, and all of our treasure to cultivate those three relationships. And so that's really what this series, that's the, the preview. In Ephesians chapter two, one through 10, today we're gonna be honing in on what it means to be a gospel-centered believer, a gospel-centered believer. And so let's read the text. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We, too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. And then there's that phrase, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the, heaven, in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And here's the kind of the apex. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared ahead of time for us to do. Let me just kind of kick this off before even before we pray, this is giving you the 30,000 foot view of what we just read, because I, I read a lot and there was a lot there. And here's a 30,000 30, foot explanation. Basically, 
there's a couple of things that Paul wanted us to understand. And the first thing he wanted us to understand is that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And let me just kind of explain to you what he meant by dead in the text. He said we walked like the dead, we talked like the dead, we had the same desires of the dead, and we carried out those desires. We were the walking dead. We were like living zombies. And guess what? He says that we loved our deadness because we love our sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And because of our deadness and because of our love for our sin, he basically says the result of that is that we are God's enemies. And so he, he creates this, this thing and he says, you were dead. I was dead in our sins, in our trespasses. And then there is that, that verse that is where we see the gospel and it says, but God, but God who is rich in mercy saved us. That's, that's really what this first passage is talking about. You were dead, but God who is rich in mercy, he saved us. He was justifiably able to condemn us. We were guilty, but he made us alive. And not only did he make us us alive, he seated us, he raised us, and put us in the same position that Christ Jesus, his one and only son, is in. He bestowed upon us the benefits and the privileges of our Lord and Savior. So instead, he saves us. He does not condemn us. He saves us. And this is the good news of the gospel. But see, but this is Paul's point. This is Paul's point in this. Paul wants us not to miss it. He basically says our salvation, this whole thing, our salvation isn't a result of your works. It's not a result of your works. It wasn't you pulling up by the, yourself by the bootstrap. It wasn't the hard hat identity. It's not a result of your works. So this is why he says it's by grace. Grace, you have been saved. Our salvation is a result of our works because dead people can't respond. It's by grace. And so this is basically... Paul gives us this 11-phrase statement that we're going to talk about today. This 11-word, 11-word statement that we're just focused on. He says, we, let me just break this down again. It's not a result of our works. Our salvation is not a result of our works. And he says this in 2.10. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. The second part of that phrase is created in Christ Jesus. And then he ends it in the third part with four good works. And that's really what I want to talk to us today is just looking at these three areas, these 11 words in three parts and breaking down what the, the beauty uh, and uh, the benefit of the gospel. So ultimately, what am I saying is this. This is the point. Our salvation is a result of God's redemptive work, and he calls us to join him in this work. Our salvation is a result of God's redemptive work, and he calls us to join him in this work. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you, Father, for this text. We thank you for the beauty of this text. We thank you for the good news of this text. Father, we thank you that you saved us, that you delivered us, that you have brought us, that we could have been condemned, but God, you were rich in mercy. And so, Father, we thank you. We bless you. And so, Father, we pray, God, that thy will will be done. Father, as we get back in, as we re-engage and as we go back to school, whether it's in our elementary, our middle school, our high school, as parents, as we are back in work, as college students, Lord, we pray that your will would be done, God. And I pray, Father, that we would marvel at your workmanship. So, Father, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen and amen. All right, again, like we said, we're going to break this down into three parts. The first part is that we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. What is the point there? Basically, he said, as I said in the first part, is that God's redemptive work in salvation. He wanted us to focus in on God's redemptive work. That in here, and I want us to recognize that God is in the active tense and we are in the passive tense. The active tense means like if the subject is I hit the ball, that that I am doing the hitting. The passive tense is I was hit by a ball. God says, let me take all responsibility for this when it comes to our redemptive salvation. God is the one who is active. We says we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship, right? Um, You see, part of this is that we got to understand, especially when it comes to kind of scoring. See, because Paul wants us to understand, like, this, this is something significant. But you and I, we really can't even register what's really taking place right now. We really can't even understand. Like, for, for some of us, I'm a big, huge sports fan, and I love sports. And, you know, and I, I also love kind of the Olympics and, and times that comes. And I'm the guy who, like, I look at pretty much all the Olympics, like stuff that I never, I was looking at, like, bow and arrow stuff. I was just like, archery. See, I don't even bow and arrow stuff. You see what I'm saying? Like, I was looking at archery, you know, and it was just like, like, because I look at it, I'm just sitting, it's like the most amazing thing, because there's something about looking at someone who's the top, who's the best in the world doing what they do. And so I'm sitting here looking at the Olympics, but sometimes I, I get confused about the scoring system. I, I, don't, I just don't understand kind of the scoring thing things. And there's the three bits that I really, really look forward to. Right, two, I get the scoring system, and the one, I don't get it, right? One is simply basketball. I love basketball, I love cheering for the United States, the Olympic team, and I love basketball, right? I understand basketball, basically, like you can either score one point, two point, or three points, and that's it, and at the end of the game, like you know who wins, whoever has the most points, basically wins. So I love watching basketball, it's simple. The other thing that I love is track and field, right? The bottom line is, did you run faster? Did you jump further? Did you jump higher? Did you throw further? Or did you throw higher? I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's simple. But the third sport that I, I genuinely love and I look forward to each and every year is gymnastics. I love gymnastics, but the scoring is so difficult. I don't understand it. Like people are doing certain things and then when, after they do it, it's just like, I look the same about the other person, but but the score ranges, and as I was just looking at it, the score over this time was ranging all the way from a 10.9 to a 15.4. And sometimes I just don't get and I don't understand. So I did a little bit of investigation because I like to know what I'm engaging in. And basically what we found out is in 2006, the, the Olympic Committee, the FIG is what they call it, they changed 
the, the scoring system. If you were an old head back in the days, it used to be a 10 was the highest that you were able to get. Now that's no longer the highest. And there's two ways in the Olympic competition that they now score. One is on execution and the other one is on the level of difficulty. And they take these two scores and they combine it together in being able to create the score. Now, even after understanding that, it's still a little bit confusing. But the point is, is that one is about execution and the other is about difficulty. You know, now while it's hard to score the Olympic Games, it's even harder to score some of the, uh, the, the elite Olympic athletes. Take, for instance, Simone Biles. I know a lot of us are disappointed as she has stepped out of a lot of the competition, but Simone Biles has basically, she is so far and above all the rest of the competition that when it comes to this idea of both execution and difficulty, that she is able to do things that no other Olympian has ever done in their time. That literally, Simone Biles has created four new jumps that is called basically Simone or Bows or like it's called hers that she does. But, you know, and while this is something that she has done, on the other side, the level of difficulty, many her and other um, athletes has basically said like, like you really are not understanding the level of difficulty that it takes for me to do this. And you're not giving me basically the understanding or the, the proper credit of what I'm doing. And so there's difficulty that it says. On one, there's execution of what I've done, but on another level, there's difficulty. This right here is what Paul gets at. Paul attempts to take on this twofold strategy for you and I to understand the redemptive work of what God is doing. And he looks at it from one, an execution. And he simply says, you are saved. There's no doubt to it. You are saved. But then, but in the flip side, he gives us, he says, but there's a level of degree of difficulty that if you knew, you wouldn't ever confuse whose work this is. You are saved by grace, but the level of difficulty is something that you can't accomplish. And we need to understand this. And so he starts off and he says, we are saved by grace. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. So put down your heart identity. Put down everything that you're trying to do to earn your salvation because you can't do it. This is a gift that only God can do. And let me just say it if I'm not clear. You are, we are his, God's workmanship. I love this translation because in the Greek, the word is poema. It's basically saying we are God's poema. Amen. And I believe that this is the best way to translate this verse because he basically, he says workmanship. I prefer this translation because, like, I like this over even some translations may have masterpiece or, you know, or handiwork. I like this because the emphasis, it places on the creator rather than the creation. When we recognize this idea that there is an emphasis that, that Paul is trying to get that is on the creator, not over simply the creation. And so in this Greek word poema, it means basically to make, right? It's something that is made. It's a work. It's a work piece. Uh, it's workmanship. It denotes a 
result of work, like it's finished work. It's different from poestis, which basically means it's a work in progress. He says, no, you are his workmanship, right? And so this idea that it's, it's finished, God is not still working on your redemptive love or the redemptive salvation. He says, it has been finished, it's done. You are his workmanship. It's where we get the word poem, right? And the word poem in other translations basically could be, it's like it's working it out. It's a work of art. It's a well-crafted poem, but it's a finished poem. You see, in the New Testament, that word poema is only give to skillful artists. And specifically in the New Testament, that word poema is only mentioned as it refers to God. That there's this masterpiece that only God has the ability to do. Sort of Simone Bow-ish. There's no, any, there's no one else that has been able to pull off what he's able to do. You see, Paul uses God's workmanship for the twofold purpose. And it's similar to the Olympic Games. One, he talks about the product of the work, the execution, that workmanship refers to the product of the creation, that when he says you are saved by grace, you are a, you are a masterpiece, you are a work. And right here we see the, the God's redemptive salvation. But not only is that hard to grasp about what he has done, the redemptive work and salvation, but he also goes in and talks about the degree of the difficulty to pull it off, right? And so when we see that first half, he says, we are his workmanship. But then the second part is where we get the complexity that we have created in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the things that we got to understand about Christ Jesus is this, is that Christ is both God's ideal man and he's also man's ideal God. That in Christ, we get to see a full picture of who God is. We don't have to wonder who God is. But also in Christ, we don't have to wonder what man or what God requires of man. We see in Christ that he is both God's ideal man and he's also man's ideal God. And so in here, when we recognize in Paul, what he's been doing in chapter one and in chapter two is that he's been laying out the benefits of being created in Christ. The benefits of being created in Christ. Again, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Right here, what Paul wants us to know is the, the, the degree of difficulty to pull off and to make that statement. Because as we talk about workmanship, workmanship also refers to the, to the, to the degree of skill which, which the product is made. The degree of skill imparts more value to things. It's like, like I said, poem means poem. It's like a good poem that we can say that this poem is excellent. This poem is excellent workmanship, right? But the poem itself, while the poem itself is great, its value is derived from the talents of the one who designed and produced the poem. So if we say this is an excellent poem that was created by Maya Angelou, then it just puts it up in another category in another stratosphere, because we, there's this, this certain level of, of poet or of the ability to put words together master, masterfully. 
You see, it's, it's sort of like this idea. So there's an example of this kind of this stitched cloth. One of my daughters made this. Briaya would make this for one of her, her friends. And when you look at this, this is, you know, this is a beautiful piece of art. You know, when we were there um, at home this whole week, and as we were there, what I saw her working on this. Because not only is it a nice piece of cloth, but she went through and she called it like it's stitching, embroidering. And in this embroidering, she literally took a, a needle and sewed through every single thing on this. So for four hours, almost four plus hours every single day, that she would just do one letter. And over multiple days, throughout the whole week, many, many, many hours, she finished this piece. You see, now while we can see this piece is a nice piece, it's a beautiful piece, and it, the word, I don't know, it says not biological. You got, somebody has to confirm that with me. But it's not biological. And this was given to someone that she believes is like, even though we're not biological, you are my sister. And this is the beginning of the work of a piece that they're putting together to show their love. And now when we just pull out the piece of paper, you can say, oh, that's nice. But when you understand the labor that went to it, it just takes it to a new, another level. You see, and this is what Paul is basically saying. That Paul is saying that you need to understand the degree of difficulty that God is doing when we say created in Christ Jesus. That those are not just words that he has. You know, and so and he, and he goes back and he, that's the reason why we remind him. Because remember, we said you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. You were dead, God made us alive. You see, in this difficulty, Paul has been trying to explain to us throughout the time. And the degree of difficulty to raising the dead is astronomical. And if you don't know how hard it is, just go to the nearest cemetery and start preaching to the, to the tombstones and see how much response you get. Paul says we were dead. Dead people don't respond. He says we are his workmanship that he does. And so Paul understands this, the degree of difficulty. And all the way back in what we've been talking about in the Get It series the last few weeks, basically we says you got to get this. Back in Ephesians chapter 1 and 3, he says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavens and in Christ. You see, Paul has been trying to illustrate the degree, the degree of difficulty and the benefits of, being, of what it means to be in Christ. You see, but, but you see, when we break it up, even if you, you know, over the last three weeks, we may miss it. We may miss of all the richness of what he says that he has, Christ, our Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing blessings in the heavens. You see, Paul was so excited for us to get this that sometimes we, we miss it. We miss what's going on. You see, we were able to take our time. We took three weeks and kind of broke it down week by week. But if you know, and if you go back to the original Greek, do you know that Ephesians chapter one is a one run-on sentence? It's one run-on sentence. 
And you know, and, when, and what does that mean? When you think about a run-on sentence, it's like either you, you just keep talking you're just, because you're so excited, you're so passionate that he's just like, I want you to get this. You've got to get this. You're not going to get it. I want you to get it. And Paul keeps coming on and he says, and he says in him, in him, in him. And you read over and over what, what, the, what we get by being in him. And then, and, and then even after that kind of going through this one run, run on sentence, Paul is like, he's bust out in spontaneous prayer. He's requesting that God, he says, like, listen, I know you're not going to get it because you've been in the church for so long. You've been there. You've done that. You've heard this message. He says, like, you're not going to get it. So listen, he just goes to God in prayer on our behalf. And he says, listen, God, I pray. I pray that the eyes of their hearts may be open. I pray that they would get it. They're missing it. That in these times of hardship, in these times of struggle, they're going to everyone else, looking to everyone else, but they're missing. They're missing the point. And so he, he prays that their eyes may be enlightened to, to what it means to be in Christ. He prays for them. He says, I'm praying for the hope of their calling, of your calling. I'm praying for the wealth, that they would understand the wealth of your inheritance. I'm praying that they would get the greatness of your power. Like he's praying these things and he's praying this toward us on our behalf. And he says like, like they're not getting these benefits. And, and basically I just went through and you could go back later and just look at these benefits. And I just briefly want to go through these benefits. But he says the benefit, number one, is of the hope of his calling. Number two, the wealth, I'm sorry, the benefits of his masterpiece, he says the benefits is one, that he chose us. That he could have chose anybody, but he chose you. He chose me. The second, that he adopted us as sons and daughters. He redeems us. That not only did he redeem us, but the Bible talks about he ex agarazzo us. He cornered the market. That, he, that if there was toothpaste in the market, he says not only did he buy all the toothpaste, not only did he buy all the brands, he also bought all the materials that it takes to make toothpaste. So that he can say that no man can come to the Father except through me. That he cornered the market. He ex agarazzo. He redeems us in Christ. He revealed his purpose us. He said, I'm not hiding my will from you. I'm giving it all out. I want you to know exactly my will. He gave us an inheritance. Not only did he give us an inheritance, he gave us security. He says, nothing's going to separate you. I'm depositing the spirit. This is a down payment to let you know that I'm coming back for what I, for our, for what I return. And he, and he goes up and he picks that up. And if that's not enough, in 2, 5 through 7, he says, he also, he saves us. He says, he's like, we, we don't get this. We don't get the richness of this. You know, and he closes it all out in 2, 11 through 13. And basically he tells us that he's also making peaceful reconciliation. That in a time where we're so divided, so divisive, can't get along with anyone. He says that Christ, in Christ, he has torn down even the fiercest of enemies. And he makes them one in Christ. He says, you guys don't get it. You don't understand the degree of difficulty. So Paul prays. And that's been my prayer for my own heart. That's been my prayer for the hearts of others. 
is that we would pray that God, please let us as a church really receive this. Let us receive this. You see, Paul wants us to access our blessings. There was this place that they called Trash Lady, you know, and um, she lived in San Francisco and for many, many um, years, and she was kind of one of those recluse, and she gathered a whole bunch of information and, and things, and so basically she ended up passing away. And when, they passed, when she passed away, literally the people went in, and like, as they opened the door, like trash was just kind of everywhere. It was everywhere. And, 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 you know, and here's this woman as, like, that was living in this kind of filth, in this kind of trash for many, many years, many decades, that she was living in here uh, with, her, with you know, the way she was fleshing out. But, as, but what was unique about this is that as they began to unfold some of the papers that they had, this wasn't any old type, ordinary type of trash. But this was deeds to things. It was, um, you know, it was money. It was vouchers. It was all these things. And here we had this woman living like a pauper when she was a millionaire. This is the very thing that we're doing as believers. God has given us all type of resources. But we're living in spiritual poverty when he has backed the truck up and given us all the resources that we need for life and godliness. He says, basically, in Christ, the riches that you have, the riches that we all have, we were created in Christ. You see, Paul wants us to understand that we are his workmanship, and we've been created in Christ Jesus. Why? And he ends it with a very simple clarion call. He says this, Four good works. Four good works. You see, God gives us a clear call to join him in his work. We're his workmanship. He's created us in Christ Jesus so that we can join him. We can join him in his work. Tony Evans, the pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, says it this way. He says, a good work is a divinely prescribed action that benefits others in such a way that God is glorified. Many Christians are unfulfilled and miserable because they've never gotten around to doing the works God has for them. Many Christians are unfulfilled and miserable because they have gotten around to doing, they haven't gotten around to doing the good works that God has for them. You see, a lot of times when I think about spirituality, we talk about a healthy person is someone who is growing in God, growing in the gospel, in the context of family while on mission. And some of us, I, you know, I like to consider like we're two-thirds Christians. What do I mean by two-thirds Christian? It's like we're good with like growing in the gospel. We have our time with the Lord. We spend time. We worship. We pray. We, 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 we commune with the Father. And we even say, hey, we're, you know, the idea of family. Like I got my city group. I'm down. We're collected. We're connected in. But the problem is, is when it comes to this idea of being on mission, ah, you know, I don't want to, you know, be overburdened. I don't want to put my way on them. I mean, it's not, this is not the best environment. And what we do is that we're real good in gospel, we're real good in family, but we're terrible at mission. 
And I really believe that many of us are not experiencing the abundant life because we stop with the idea that we, we are his workmanship. We recognize that we know that we are saved by grace, but, and we all recognize that we are created in Christ Jesus. You know, we recognize that, we embrace that, but the four good works is like, all right, what is that? What exactly do you mean, God? The four good works. And this is why when we talk about our DNA, we says that this idea is that God is unleashing us, healthy people, to do ministry where life exists. That God, that the gospel changes us. The gospel changes people, but God uses people to change the world. There is a reason why that from the time that we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, not, we're not immediately raptured up into the heaven. He leaves us here to be conduits of his grace, to be his ambassadors, to be his sent ones, to be his missionaries. And that's where we, we got to understand. And this is why we, re- we recognize that our salvation is a result of God's redemptive work, but he, we also must recognize that he is calling you. He's calling me to join him in his work. And this is why over the next five weeks, basically, we're going to be looking at really this idea of a heist narrative. And if you notice in the logo of the, of the thing that there's this heist theme. I'm a big heist fan. I don't know if any of you guys have seen Oceans, the Ocean series, right? Oceans, yeah, right? I know, we're in church, you're not supposed to say we see those, but like, but Oceans is a great series, and you know, I've watched Oceans 11, Oceans 12, Oceans 13, I even went back and watched Oceans 8, right? And I'm watching all of these series and these heist themes and narratives, and it's like, not just Oceans, it could be in any um, different narrative. But in these high series, what you have are some key elements. And I need you to understand what the key elements are, because this is like, I really see that the book of Ephesians is kind of walking in the same kind of genre of the heist theory thing. Like the key elements are this. Number one, you have the leader, right? You have the leader. You got a strong hero who's there to lead the team, who can convince them that they need to do this job. I love kind of in these series and all the heist movies, what do you have? You have this leader. And basically, what is the call for each one of them? He says, listen, put down your side hustles because I got something grander for you. And he gives them this idea to, to come back. Like what you're doing is cool, but I got something better. Many of us have been kind of surviving over the last 16 months. We've been kind of doing you know, what we can do, right? But God right now, I really believe that God is saying, listen, I understand that we've been in survival mode for the last 16 months, but I got something grander. Come back. I got, I got, you have been created in Christ Jesus and our commander in chief, our leader is calling us. But not only do we see the leader, we also see the team. And I love this part of the heist movies because like each one of the team has a place where they belong and they matter, right? And they're all kind of specialists in their fields. Like you got the driver, you got the, you know, the suave guy, you got all the different people, the brainiac, the computer guy. You have all these different people. And the thing is, is that every single person is needed to pull off this heist. That if one of them weren't there, they weren't able to do it. That Ocean's Eleven right? Went to Ocean's 12, and then in Ocean's 11, they needed all 11 of them. And in Ocean's 12, they needed all 12 of them in order to pull off what they do. And there, there is this team. And so we talk about this idea that the church is not like family, but it is family. And we're responsible siblings. 
That everybody in our church has a place where they belong and they matter to accomplish God's work because he's calling us to his work. But then we have the motivation. And what we're going to see in chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians is the motivation that the leader is giving a compelling reason for us to join him in his work. We, we, we see this. And then in the fourth one, we see the plan that every heist has a scene where the leader is telling the team the plan and to show them kind of like where your expertise fits in and why we need you to pull off this job. And there's the plan that we have. And so we're going to look at generous steward. How do we use our time, our talent, and our treasures? And then finally it goes into the heist, the actually pulling off of the job. But what, like all the great movies, there's always this period where there's a setback because we know as we go into it, like there's going to be things like you're coming up, we're revved up, we're excited to go, but then there's always something that we didn't consider, always something that holds us back, something that's keeping us from doing the very thing that we know God is calling us to do based upon the vision that God has given us in where we are. You see, but what I love about most heist movies is that in these movies, we are meant to be impressed with the master architect, that somehow they were able to see things before anyone else could see it. Somehow they were able beforehand, before the heist was even taking place, they were able to, to already have counters to the setbacks that were set. And my prayer is that as we walk through the group, or as we walk through the book of Ephesians, is that we would come away impressed with one person. We would be impressed with Christ Jesus because all throughout the book of Ephesians, what we see is that in him, and as God is calling you and I, and he says that we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God has a work for you to do. God has a work for me to do. God has a work for us to collective, collectively do. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So welcome to the DNA series and over the next year, I, the next year, the next five weeks, and even going into the next year, we, I have one single goal, one single goal. And you're going to hear it a thousand times from me. You're going to get tired of it. As a church, I simply want to shift the collective mentality of our church from a family of members to a family of missionary disciple makers. Like there's a certain thing and approach that when we come that we think about and it's like membership and membership is like going on a cruise. And when you go on a cruise, it's all about you. It's about your comfort. It's about your thing. And I was like, I want to get off the cruise blueprint and I want to get on a battleship. And when we get on a battleship, we recognize that our comfort is not the number one thing that we're looking for, that we have been sent. We are missionaries. I don't know what the, del the Delta variant is going to do, but we're not going back in recluse. We are mobilized as the church, and what we do is essential. God is calling you. God is calling me to shift our collective mindset from a family of members to a family of missionary disciple makers. And this is the reason why we're, we're saying, and we're, we're taking this serious so that on the, um, August the 22nd and 29th, we're basically, we recognize that some of us are not in the position and in the place that they can do what we're calling them to do. So it's like, listen, that's fine. Continue to come, continue to be here, but we're calling those who want to be on mission and want to be missionaries to come. And we're going to take time. And on the 22nd and the 29th, both at the Stone Mountain campus and on the Fourth Ward campus, basically we are going to be commissioning 
commissioning. In the same way we commission people when they go to Puerto Rico and to Honduras and to India, we're going to be commissioning people here. We may not be going anywhere, but we're going to where we live, where we work, and where we play. And our prayer is that we will galvanize as a people who are sent. God is calling you, he's calling me to give up our side hustles because we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And for those of you who want to go on this mission trip, we're asking three things over the course of this year. Number one is that you would commit to praying. You would commit to praying that you would pray for our collective gospel witness all throughout Metro Atlanta. Number two, that you would partner, that you're not going on mission alone, but you would get connected to a city group, a group of people who says, I want to be on mission with you. I want to join you with you. We're going to talk about our college ministry. We're going to be talking about like different ways that you can join and be on mission over these next few weeks. We want you to pray. We want you to partner. And the third one, we want you to participate. We want you to physically and intentionally go on a mission trip. And that mission trip can be to Clarkston. It can be whatever, but you're intentionally going on a mission trip overseas or here domestically that there's an intentional day or two days that we are giving. I really believe that God uses missions as a tool for our sanctification to grow us. And this is why it is imperative for us to be intentional about that. And so we're going to be commissioning because we want to display that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Let's pray. Father, We're thankful for the grace that you've given us, Lord. Ultimately, Lord, I pray that your will will be done. Father, I pray that you would begin to even work on the hearts and the minds of the people whose hearts are, are bubbling up, Lord, with anticipation and with desire, Father, to be a part of this. Father, I pray that city groups, Lord, would shift the question in their hearts to not to, okay, where are we gonna be on mission to? Where are we going? to be on mission. Father, I pray for every soul that is online, every soul that is here, Lord, that they would receive the call, that they would give away their side hustles. And Father, as you being our commander-in-chief, Father, we would come and to be a part of this grand heist that you're pulling off. Father, we need you. We need a new normal. Don't let us go back to the way things were. Father, allow us to follow you as you make fishes of men. Father, we love you. We thank you. We bless your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.